This evening I'd like to talk about healing ill will. Probably as long as we can remember back to the time when we were children, we have probably felt a longing in our hearts to be connected, to be loved, to be accepted, a longing for intimacy, for trust, for acceptance, for closeness. And yet, too often, we might feel that painful when we take a moment to pause and feel it, a painful and bewildering sense of apartness and disconnection. And this underlying feeling of division and separation gives rise essentially to all of the pain and sorrow that we can experience in this life. Loneliness and heartache, anxiety, alienation, feelings of helplessness and incompleteness, I think they all have their roots in this aching sense of being alone, of being fearful, of being separate. And it makes us anxious. A Christian mystic once said that anxiety is the mood of separation. And it is really right for us to ask the question, to ask of ourselves what the way is out of this pain. What is the way to healing? Not just for ourselves, because the separation we can feel on an individual, on a personal level, is certainly the same separation and apartness disconnection that gives rise to so much of the sorrow and conflict we see in our world. To question the way to healing, to question the way out of pain, I think is a question for us to treasure deeply. And it is a question which is really at the root of this tradition, this teaching, this practice. It is all about how to end suffering. The Buddha reflected on this a lot. I mean, he reflected on the many, many causes of violence, of harm, of tragedy. And he also acknowledged that we cannot always heal or have the power to alleviate the separation in another's heart. But he said we face in our lives this very simple and profound challenge to look within our own hearts, to look for the way to be free of pain and sorrow. And he spoke of one of the great manifestations of this sense of apartness and disconnection is ill will. And so much of the misunderstandings and the delusions 
that arise from ill will. And when he talked about this path and he talked about this practice, he talked about it as essentially being a path of liberating our hearts, of chetovamuti. And described a heart that is liberated from ill will as resting in a boundless loving kindness and a boundless appreciation and compassion and equanimity. And when we look at this path deeply, we see it is a teaching of love. It's not a teaching of hate. It's a teaching of love that is born of wisdom that permeates the whole of the practice and the path. And I think, in truth, this teaching of love really needs to permeate the whole of our own practice. The first great precept, to refrain from harm, to protect and to treasure the well-being of all beings, And the teaching of loving-kindness and wisdom, these are not, in reality, three different teachings, but they're one teaching. Ethics, as the Buddha talked about ethics, are words and thoughts and acts of loving-kindness. Describing a a mind, a heart of boundless warmth and friendliness that is truly free from ill will. And in essence, really, all of the teaching of ethics, of loving kindness and wisdom, are actually all directed towards healing separation, towards healing ill will and fear and aversion. In its deeper sense, this practice is really about our relationship to life. It's a path that's not meant to limit or to confine us but to free us to find an awakened heart without limitations. The first great precept and the teaching of loving kindness describe a wholesome and a liberated way of being that arise from the ground of profound understanding. And in the depth, this understanding naturally is embodied and expressed in compassion, in an understanding of interconnectedness and interdependence. Stephen Mitchell once wrote that the path of wisdom and the path of love lead to the same garden. We undertake this training of harmlessness, of loving kindness, to encourage the flowering of wisdom and letting go in our life, moment to moment. And it's a training that's meant to awaken us from delusion, to free us from suffering, but to free all beings from suffering. It's to encourage a deep liberation in our life, a liberation from the contractedness and selfing place of ill will. I do feel it's very appropriate to make a distinction between ill will and anger. Anger can be an expression of ill will, but it is not always an expression of ill will. 
Certainly when we feel fearful or outraged or indignant or enraged, our first thought or feeling, is very, it's very rare that our first thought or feeling is to protect and to enhance and promote the well-being and the happiness of the person that we're angry with. Anger can rise from ill will, but not necessarily so. It's true, I think, to say that anger that has been allowed to dwell in our hearts unattended will, with time and repeated visits, harden like cement and turn into ill will. I think we know in our own experience if someone has hurt us or offended us by their words or their acts, although the event may be long past, Um, it can remain really unexamined in our hearts, really bereft of forgiveness, bereft of letting go. And when it remains in our heart bereft of forgiveness, we find ourselves chewing and chewing over the event, visiting it like some kind of sacred shrine. And with those repeated visits, it hardens, it becomes impenetrable, and we find ourselves with an enemy. But ill will is actually something that is much broader than just anger. Ill will includes envy. It includes covetousness. It includes resentment, cruelty, prejudice. Ill will is sometimes found in harsh and demeaning speech. Sometimes ill will is just in the withdrawal of acceptance or affection. (laughs) All those painful inner tides that we feel so deeply that really cloud our minds and they poison our hearts. And those tides make the separation between I and you bigger and bigger. Anger can be appropriate and it can be inappropriate. When we see, as we do so often, in our world the injustice, the oppression, the prejudice, all the forms of ill will that so deeply harm and injure and damage the well-being of too many people. We see this, and if we are awake, it touches us deeply, and it needs to touch us deeply. When we see so much of the terrible tragedies in our world that are born of ill will, I think we really need to really feel very deeply the profound implications of holding any seed of ill will in our own hearts. But we see appropriate anger when it it is a reality, I think, that very few of the much-needed social and political transformations that have ever happened in this world wouldn't have happened without appropriate anger. And appropriate anger can be a very powerful catalyst for gestures and acts of transformation. Appropriate anger can be be the beginning of altruistic gestures, acts of healing that relieve suffering. 
And I think it's a real question of how do we know when anger is appropriate? First of all, I think we know that anger is appropriate because it motivates us to reach beyond the boundaries of self. It motivates us to reach beyond those boundaries to relieve suffering and to ease pain. It's a gift of fearlessness, appropriate anger. It's a gift of fearlessness that the Buddha spoke about, of protecting, of being a refuge to those who have no protection, of saying no to the causes of suffering, of being a friend to those who have no friend. I think secondly, we know that it's appropriate anger because it leaves very few residues in the mind. It doesn't leave the residues of guilt and self-blame and remorse of, oh, wishing I hadn't said that or I hadn't done that. It doesn't leave those residues in the mind. And I think thirdly, we know anger is appropriate because it arises in the light of the precept of non-harming. It arises in the light of the precept of loving-kindness. So it is not anger that adds to the mountain of suffering. There is no self-benefit. Our heart stays open. There is no wish to harm another. And I think sometimes in our world there can be possibly really too little appropriate anger. Because I think that the fear of appropriate anger at times can lead us at times to accept what is unacceptable. Accepting violence or poverty or uh, abuse or war or prejudice. Sometimes we're afraid of appropriate anger, maybe because we've had too much exposure to inappropriate anger in our life and we know how, how hard and how harmful it is to be around inappropriate anger that we don't know how to make the distinction between, in ourselves between appropriate and inappropriate anger. Sometimes we're trying to shield ourselves from appropriate anger because of not being able to make that distinction. We try and shield ourselves out of fear. I remember it was one time a woman telling me that her practice had helped her to bear an unbearable relationship where there was violence. And her practice had helped her to be more equanimous. And she thought that was good practice. I remember speaking to a man, a, a man once who watched his brother degenerate in a in a mental health uh, Ill, in in a mental illness, and as he did so, he became increasingly enraged and would strike out at his family and harm his family. And he said he felt proud of his detachment, but this is not good practice. Hmm? It is not what our practice is about. Our practice is not about disengagement. It is about engagement. But in inappropriate anger, we can also come to know. Because inappropriate anger arises from the ground of ill will, and its effect is to deepen ill will. When there is inappropriate anger, there is often, consciously or unconsciously, a wish to harm another. There is a breaking of the first precept. And that inappropriate anger that arises from ill will can leave many, many residues in the mind of guilt and shame. And the fact is that it doesn't heal. 
In fact, inappropriate anger mostly solidifies the division and separation between self and other. And rather than ending suffering, inappropriate anger, of course, tends to have endless ripples and waves of hurt and pain. But I think most importantly, we know inappropriate anger because there's no commitment in it to liberate our own hearts or the heart of another from ill will. I really do feel that ill will is the hardest of all of the afflictive emotions to free ourselves from and to understand. And yet, ill will is perhaps, in my understanding, it is the root of pretty much all of the afflictive emotions. And it's why we practice. It's why we so need to develop and cultivate the tenderness and the care and the attention. I think first it's important to allow ourselves to imagine. Allow ourselves to imagine, which is a big imagining. Allow ourselves to imagine our own hearts liberated from ill will, from fear and aversion. And in truth, in this teaching, we are asked to imagine this. We're almost asked to imagine the unimaginable. The Buddha once said, If it were not possible for you to do this, I would not ask it of you. If liberating yourself from ill will would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask it of you. But as the only outcome of abandoning ill will is happiness and freedom, I ask it of you. Cultivate the good, loving kindness, non-harming. It will bring only happiness. It is a hard thing to imagine. I think perhaps we might be able to imagine or accept that in our life we, we could possibly find some equanimity or some restraint with ill will, enough equanimity or restraint that we don't always feel that we have to act it out or you know, go through our lives throwing chairs and shouting at people and you know, knocking people out of our way. But the prospect or the possibility of cultivating and abiding in a heart that is truly free from ill will, I think for most of us, is much more daunting and profound aspiration. And we might question whether it's even possible. But that's like questioning whether liberation is even possible. It does happen. It truly does happen in the direst circumstances in life. Amazing people find the capacity to liberate their hearts from ill will. I read something that Archbishop Tutu said in South Africa after he'd been present at many of the Truth and Reconciliation meetings between those had been tortured and their torturers, between families of prisoners who'd been murdered and their murderers, 
an unimaginable prospect for most of us. And Archbishop Tutu said at one of these meetings when these groups of people would come and speak to each other about the pain and their suffering, he said, it's as if we are standing on sacred ground in this room. We should take off our shoes and bow. Something holy has visited us here. In truth, I think the cultivation of the first precept and loving kindness really holds the whole of the teaching and the path within them. Because non-harming loving kindness as a path holds within it the understanding of generosity and patience and tolerance, they're all part of that journey. So is wise attention and inner stillness, the capacity to attend to all those small moments in our life when ill will can be fed. In the Tibetan tradition, it, they say, don't think it doesn't matter, all, these, all those small moments when we might find ourselves flinching or recoiling with aversion. Don't think it doesn't matter, all those small moments when we find ourselves telling the story of aversion. And don't think it doesn't matter, all those small moments when we consciously nurture and cultivate the seeds of loving kindness and understanding and care. Because those small moments are the moments when we are traveling the path of liberating our hearts from ill will. Those are the small moments when we're really cultivating profound understanding, understanding the nature of self and the emptiness of self. I think in reality, the moments of ill will in our life are the moments when we see this sense of me most powerfully. And the moments of loving kindness and harmlessness are also the moments when this sense of I, this sense of me, fades away the most. The moments of loving kindness and truly being free from ill will are the moments when we rest most deeply in an understanding of our interconnectedness. It would certainly be really naive and unrealistic to imagine that somehow we're going to have this one magical moment where we have this amazing breakthrough and ill will never ever after that moment raises its head again. And in the practice of liberating our hearts from ill will is one that is a moment-to-moment practice. It's a moment-to-moment practice of honesty, of kindness, of compassion, of wisdom, The Buddha used the metaphor of a mother protecting her only child with constant vigilance and mindfulness and love. Another metaphor I've come to like, I'm sure some of you saw that documentary, The March of the Penguins. And a lot of people have appropriated that documentary, so I feel at liberty to also appropriate it. 
But that story to see that that journey of a mother penguin walking or rather waddling her way 70 miles across the ice to lay one egg without any food in these incredibly freezing, unbelievable conditions. And then after the egg is laid, handing so carefully that egg over to the father penguin, it became his job to keep the egg warm so that she could waddle 70 miles back to the ocean to feed her starving body. And then this father penguin, for three months with nothing to eat in the middle of the blizzard in the coldest place on earth carefully day by day balancing that egg on the tops of his feet until it hatched and one unmindful movement to drop the egg and the chick would die well I thought that was pretty remarkable But it actually struck me that that's actually the kind of perseverance and the kind of devotion (laughs) that is asked of us (laughs) if we are really going to protect our hearts from the wounds of ill will. If we're really going to allow that liberated heart to be born. To nurture a heart where there's a flowering of loving kindness and wisdom. And I'm sure on an ideal level, we could imagine ourselves doing that. And then there's this very real level in our life. You know, on an ideal level, we would certainly love to feel loving kindness and harmlessness towards all beings. And then there's this other level in our life. You know, we think, well, okay, I'll do that. But maybe there's just just this one person. (laughs) This really difficult person (laughs) who really deserves ill will, you know? (laughs) Or really deserves some aversion, you know? You know, there's such a sort of unacceptable, objectionable person that they earned aversion. Maybe we have this one person in our life that we're kind of unwilling to forgive or that we'd like to forsake. And we think maybe it doesn't matter. But again, in the Tibetan tradition, it's said a single spark is enough to set alight a mountain. We might even think of withholding loving kindness from some aspect of ourselves, from our bodies, from our minds, our hearts, Yet in that withholding of loving kindness from any aspect of ourselves, we are actually giving sustenance to ill will. What we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. The demon we feed becomes a bigger demon. All those small moments when we really find the courage to reach out to another, to protect another, to care for the well-being of another, these moments also truly matter. As it said, great oceans are filled drop by drop. 
all the moments we offer to ourselves, find the courage to offer to ourselves generosity and tolerance and patience. We are actually, in all those moments, nurturing our capacity to find boundless kindness. Shantideva, who was a great Indian teacher, He said that there are two primary insights necessary for the flowering of compassion and loving-kindness. The first of those insights is to know so deeply the suffering and the pain of ill will. Part of us does know this. I mean, I don't think any of us are really comfortable with aversion or intolerance or irritation. I think we do experience in those moments that the ways that they banish us from happiness and from peace. We're really never happy and aversive in the same moment. We're really, I think, not very often calm and irritated in the same moment. And we know the pain of deeper ill will. We know the loneliness and the isolation, the terrible burden of carrying through our lives someone, anyone, who we deeply resent or fear or dislike. It can be like a poison that consumes us from within, shattering our capacity for ease. Many of us probably have stories that have long history, a long history of ill will. I think sometimes it's hard for us to see that these long historical stories of ill will only can survive if we continue to nourish and stimulate them with our thoughts and our dwelling. And the truth is that the stories and the ill will go round and they go round and they go get older and they get tighter with each circle until actually the story holds us inside of itself like a fist holding a stick. And after a while, we're not even telling the story. The story is telling us. The story is telling us who we are. Someone once said that holding ill will is like burning down your house to get rid of a rat. I think to have even one person in our life that we hold in separation, that we hold in ill will, is like binding ourselves to suffering and to samsara. We just can't even afford it. We really can't afford it. We know the painfulness that comes with forsaking anyone. We know the painfulness that comes with forsaking any part of ourselves. But there can also be part of us that just doesn't want to know it. You know, culturally, these days, it's pretty trendy to be enraged. You know, and it's pretty trendy to find ways to legitimize rage. You know, we talk about road rage. Now we talk about supermarket rage. (laughs) Near where I live, the surfers talk about surf rage. 
You know, they fight over whose wave it is. <laughs> it's this kind of deluded thinking in my understanding. But then that's the nature of aversion. It has a pretty good deal of delusion in it. Somehow it feels easier. It feels easier to kind of, as a way of shielding and protecting ourselves, to say it's your fault. It seems easier to say it's your fault then just open to this simple truth, you know, this really simple truth, not about your fault or my fault or anybody's fault, but just that ill will is so painful. I think if we do open to that fully, how painful ill will is, it feels almost impossible to bear. But that's the insight that Shantideva was talking about, to really, really feel, to know deeply the suffering of ill will. The second part of that insight of knowing the suffering of ill will is to know very deep, equally deeply, the effects of generating ill will, of how it creates a mandala of suffering in this life, harming others, harming ourselves through words, through thoughts, through acts, through choices that are harsh, that are demeaning, that are cruel knowing that no joy or happiness or trust can ever be born, but only fear and a deeper, deeper sense of separation. It's not in our friendships always that we feed and nurture our capacity to liberate our hearts from that suffering. The places where we really liberate our hearts from the suffering of ill will it's probably, unfortunately, in the places where we're the most resentful and the most fearful, in the places where we feel that our hearts have turned to stone. I want to read you something a woman said that actually touched me so deeply. She... talked about the journey she made from pain to compassion after the abduction and disappearance of her sister when she was 16 years old. For 20 years, she and her family lived with the torture of not knowing what had happened and an ongoing anxiety that never slept. And then her sister's bones were discovered in the cellar of a serial killer. This was in England. She talked of her growing need to find a way to peace without denying the human atrocity of what had happened to her sister. Attending the trial of her sister's killers didn't give her much satisfaction. She said her journey towards peace began with murderous rage. Realizing she was capable herself of killing in that rage She said she also began to know that she couldn't ever dismiss anyone who acted out of a fury like she was experiencing. Her first step towards healing was in finding the courage to speak the truth of her sister's life and how she died, of finding those who were able to listen to the horror of her sister's torture and her eventual eventual murder without flinching. 
After the raid, she said bottomless grief followed, an ocean of tears and then self-pity. She spoke of a meditation when she felt that the ocean of her tears was filled with everyone who had ever experienced loss through violence, Holocaust victims, people in Rwanda, and all the atrocities of the world. Somehow the raw pain began to subside and she found herself able to be still in the midst of pain. She spoke of her questioning of what to do with such unbearable pain. Not being connected with it or being able to express it, she said, would lead her to depression and suicide. Acting it out would just lead to more brutality and harm. Repression and denial would just lead to physical illness. The profound insight she said she came to was to inch towards forgiveness. Returning to her cushion, she found herself reflecting on the life of her sister's killer. Locked away, demonized, isolated, estranged from their own children. In truth, her sister's killer eventually killed himself in prison. She found herself able to feel the tragedy of this life too. She said that her preference is to think of forgiving as an ongoing process rather than a static state. Forgiving, she says, was not only for her sister's killers, but for her own children in the next generation. Shantideva put it perhaps in a different way. He said, the person who has disparaged, insulted, and offended you, place them as you would your spiritual teacher with respect on the crown of your head. This is a practice of compassion. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean condoning the atrocity. It doesn't mean not finding the right action. It doesn't mean not dissolving into passivity but how hard it is to find that heart that truly understands the effects of generating ill will. Shanti Davis said the second insight that is really important in liberating the heart from ill will is to deeply understand where it is that ill will arises from. In Tibetan, strangely, the word for ill will is mental discomfort. It's very mild. (laughs) But then it's important to bear in mind that in Tibetans, there's actually only two words to describe emotion, happy and sad. (laughs) It makes life a lot simpler, doesn't it? Happy and sad. Sad emotions, happy emotions. But mental and ill will is certainly one of the sad (laughs) ones. But mental discomfort is certainly what happens to us when we feel in any way hurt or dismissed or unfairly treated by another. Ill will arises very often from a sense of injury. Times there is injury. And in the face of injury, our most immediate and very human response is to seek to separate and disconnect, to protect ourselves. And I must say that sometimes this is absolutely the wise response. There's not necessarily any wisdom at all 
in, you know, being injured and saying, well, you know, I'll just sit here and be injured. Sometimes we need to protect ourselves and to remove ourselves from that potential for harm. But also at times it is a habit of fear. And we see when it's a habit of fear that we remove ourselves from injury and we take the person who's injured us with us in our thoughts, in our fear. The first great precept in loving kindness is to protect the miracle that life is. To cultivate trust and understanding and love and to learn to embody this in all our relationships. And to do this, we must know how to embody it in relationship to ourselves, our own bodies, mind, and heart. I think, see, too often we can be cruel and disparaging and rejecting and disrespecting of ourselves. And we can do this so often that we don't even notice anymore how much we have withdrawn love from ourselves. That we can harm ourselves again and again. And there can be so much in ourselves that feels almost impossible to embrace or to respect in our bodies or in our appearance, in our pain, in illness. There can be so much that feels hard to accept in our states of our mind and our emotions. There's so much that we can disdain. We can even hate our ill will. But refusing to embrace it is a way of harming ourselves. Non-acceptance is an act of ill will. Non-embracing is an act of ill will that gets manifested in self-judgment, in denunciation, in rebuking, in self-negation. And in all of these, we are actually surrendering loving-kindness, and we're surrendering the first great precept. And learning not to do that, we can learn to change the tide of ill will. Everything that appears in our body and mind is a manifestation of life. And it asks for our respect and our protection, and it asks for our understanding. I think over and over again in this practice, we are learning the art of not forsaking ourselves. We are learning the art of finding the generosity and patience and tolerance that are the fabric of ahimsa, the fabric of non-harming. Instead of fleeing from mental discomfort, we can learn to listen to it and to know that it asks of us to stay close. It asks of us our understanding. We're learning in the path of mindfulness to be equally near all things and to greet all things with equal respect. And when we listen to ourselves, we hear in the small moments of ill will and annoyance and irritation, what we hear are the small mutterings of self. And in the places of our deepest ill will, we hear the whole symphony of self. Sometimes I wonder, can there be a will without this pronounced appearance of me, of I, of self? I don't think so. Who is enraged? Who is fearful? 
The bigger the ill will, the louder the self. I think it is really important to notice how this, the solidity of self and the solidity of the sense of other grows simultaneously. That our injury and our enemy grow together and they are bound together. And to liberate ourselves, we also need to liberate our enemy. To liberate our enemy is to liberate ourselves. To find the courage to befriend mental discomfort is to find the way to be free of that discomfort, of liberating our hearts from that contracted space of selfing, It's a great kindness to ourselves. It's a great kindness to all beings. It's like this first great precept of non-harming and the path of loving kindness almost have these... It's a journey. It's often a journey in our life. And the first step on that journey actually is often one of restraint. To to instead of reacting or impulsively, you know, annihilating the small insect on our path. Instead of uttering those words that are harmful, that so easily fly out of our mouth, that might demean or hurt another person. Instead of feeding or nourishing our thoughts of aversion or judgment, we learn to restrain ourselves out of mindfulness, out of love, not berating ourselves, but being curious and interested in the mind of that moment. Is it helpful? Does it ease suffering? Does it lead to healing? The practice of restraint is in all those moments when we find ourselves about to sink inwardly into bitterness or disapproval or frustration with ourselves. Where else are we going to learn about patience and about tolerance and about healing, but here. Restraint is a training in kindness. It's a training in love, out of dedication for our own well-being and the well-being of others. And that's so important because that's what makes the difference between restraint and suppression. The second step of the training of the first precept and loving kindness is to reach out to extend ourselves, to reach out to protect the well-being of another, to reach out to support, to appreciate, to reach out with words and acts and gestures of loving kindness, teaching ourselves to cross the boundaries of self and other, to protect the small creature, those we love, those we don't know, and those we dislike. Nourishing our own capacity for loving kindness and tenderness and interconnectedness. And it's almost like with that, that, that learning of restraint, that learning of protection, training ourselves in the way of understanding, training ourselves in the way of interconnectedness, it becomes a natural way of being what at first feels at times so effortful 
becomes with practice effortless because we know that this is the truth of our being. And we see that sense of self and other, that sense of separation and apartness, begin to dissolve. And we don't liberate our hearts from ill will, just for our own well-being. But because our world so much needs this. And the Sargadatta Maharaj once said, Wisdom teaches me I am nothing, and love teaches me I am everything. We take a couple of moments quietly together. This talk was given by Christina Feldman at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on May 3, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.